Psalm 103, a Psalm of David. One of the many Psalms that David has wrote, David wrote, calling us to worship the Lord and to be drawn into deeper reflection and praise and meditation upon who he is and what God has done. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Father, we come before you and ask for your, an outpouring of your spirit to open our hearts and our minds to the truth of scripture, Lord, that you would impress upon us who you are, what you have done in such a way that our lives would be lived in a perpetual offering of thanks and praise to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I do bring you greetings this morning from Mobile, Alabama, where I spent the past week at our denomination's General Assembly. It was a, every time I go, it is such an exhausting week. It's a good week, but it's an exhausting week. And um, I do look forward to sharing with you some of the things that came out of that, which I'll be telling about in upcoming weeks. If you want to get a preview of that, if you go to our Facebook page, I posted a reflection on General Assembly from a good friend of mine last night, and you can read that to get a flavor of what happened and what the God is doing, particularly to advance the gospel in the area of racial reconciliation. Turn our attention here to Psalm 103. As I was driving to Mobile, Alabama, and driving back from Mobile, Alabama, I lost count on the way of how many roads I passed, how many highways I drove on, and how many bridges I went over that were a memorial to something, a memorial to the veterans of this, to the daughters of the Confederacy, to this local county person, to this state's person, to monuments and memorials all over the country and all over highways. And for some reason, we as a people have this compulsive need to create monuments, right? I mean, every country that you go to, every city that you go to, every community that you go to, there are monuments that are there to great thinkers, to great leaders, for those that have served in war, to those who gave their lives in war. You go to Washington, D.C., and there are monuments to our founding fathers, to the Vietnam War, the Korean War, World War II, to the different armed services, armed services, to those who lost their lives in the, the, the attack of the Pentagon on 9-11, to great thinkers to leaders of great movements, to moments in history. Why do we do this? Why do we construct all these monuments? Is it not so that we ourselves and future generations would forget not the labor and the sweat and the blood and the sacrifice that other people gave so that we might experience the freedom and liberties that we enjoy on a daily basis. Isn't that why we do it? That these monuments are there for us and for future generations to forget not the benefits that we have received, but also so that we would give and show the proper thankfulness, gratitude, and respect that is due to our nation or due to various national heroes. As we turn to Psalm 103 this morning, David in this psalm is calling us both individually, that we would use this individually, but also as the people of God and as a body, to forget not who God is and what God has done. And in, re, and in response, that we would show and give to God the thankfulness, gratitude, honor, and praise that he is due. Follow along with me as I read Psalm 103. David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not 
all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But... The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and righteousness to his children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty one who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord. All his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Here in this psalm, David gives this call at the beginning, an individual call to bless the Lord, that is to praise him. And it ends with a call for God's people, indeed all of creation, to praise him. But aside from that, there is one other command, one other instruction, imperative that is given in this psalm. And the only other imperative, that is, the only other command that's given in this psalm is to forget not who God is and what he has done. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The next two verses then lay out a series of different things about who God is and what he has done. Things that we are to forget not. Forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And what happens over the course of the rest of the psalm is that these principles are then expanded in a variety of ways until it culminates in this call for God's people to give him praise. Forget not. It's a call for us to remember. I would suggest to you that what you most frequently need in your life, what you most frequently need in your faith, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, that what you most frequently need is not new information. 
Yes, it's helpful to gain a new insight, to gain a new level of understanding. Yes, the gospel and the scriptures are something that are very simple, but are something that you could spend the rest of your life plumbing the depths of. And yes, there is a basic level of knowledge about the Christian faith that you need to become a Christian and to to live a Christian. But for most things that you deal with in your life and most struggles in your faith, faith, most most challenges that you are faced with, rarely is the thing that you need, rarely is it new information. I think you hear this in the way people talk about um, church, people talk about conferences that they go to, people talk about counsel that they have received. Well, how was the sermon that you heard? Well, you know, I, I heard it all before. It wasn't anything new in what was said. Well, how was your, your, you, you've been going to, you've seen a, a biblical counselor, you've been talking with one of the elders about the situation in your life. How's that going? Well, you know, they, they haven't told me anything that I've, they haven't told me anything new. And these statements are made, we make these statements as if the thing that you most need in your life is something new. But Scripture is instructive. Because one of the most commonly given commands of Scripture is to forget not, is to remember who God is and what he has done. You see it from cover to cover. Shortly after uh, the flood and the God puts a rainbow in the, sky, in the sky, why does he do so? So that the people of God would forget not who God is and what he has done. After God delivers his people out of Egypt, he gathers them at Mount Sinai and he says, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord, the the God of your father Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. And then the rest of the Old Testament is said again and again and again and again where God says, Remember, remember, remember that I am the God of your father Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob. Remember that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Forget not what I have done for you and who I am. So, In order to help the people of Israel forget not, God established a rhythm to help them remember all of who God is and what he has done. There were seven feasts that were occurred over the course of a year. There was the Passover feast in particular that people would remember God's deliverance. There were the daily sacrifices that were being offered. And the different feasts focused on different aspects of God's character and different aspects of what he has done. Why? So that as part of the daily life of the people of God, as they engaged in daily sacrifices, as they went through the monthly and yearly rhythm of their worship, that they would not forget, but that they would remember who God is and what he has done. It continues in the New Testament. Of course, you see it in the establishment of the Lord's Supper, where Jesus says to his disciples, what? Do this in remembrance of me. And then you read the letters of the Apostle Paul. And what does Paul say again and again and again? Remember who you were, once were, and remember who you now are in Christ. Remember what God has done for you, and remember the grace that has been shown to you. Forget not all of these benefits that God has shown you in who he is and who you are and what God has done for you. We know this not only because of the pattern of Scripture, but you know, this is true in my own life. What I most frequently need really is not new information. But what I most frequently need in my situations is I need to forget not who God is and what he has done. When I'm in the midst of an argument with a family member, I need to forget not that my rightness is not found 
in winning the argument and proving that I am right, but that my rightness is found in who I am in Jesus Christ. That when I have sinned and when I sin again, I need to forget not that God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ, that though my sins be as scarlet, that God washes them away, that he makes me as white as snow. I need to forget not again and again God's forgiveness. When I'm anxious about situations that I'm faced with, anxious about the future, anxious about uh, circumstances that loved ones are dealing with, I need to forget not that I have a loving, heavenly Father. And because he is my heavenly father, he is in heaven, the sovereign one who rules over all, who can do whatever he wants. And because he is my heavenly father, that he always acts rightly. He always acts in love and graciousness. I need to forget not that I have a heavenly father. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. Our father who art in heaven, forget not who it is that you pray to and who it is that you go to. When there's periods of life when I'm bored, when I'm feeling insignificant, I need to forget not that my life is found in Jesus Christ and by being found in him, I am joined to his eternal purpose. When I'm dealing with temptation and I'm considering about sinning or not sinning, I need to forget not that it is Jesus who broke the power of sin and I don't have to sin. And when I'm really debating as a conscious choice whether to sin or not to sin, I need to forget not that I am not my own, but that I was bought with a price, and that price was the blood of Jesus Christ. When there's times in my life when I feel like I am lacking, that I've got some need, that God is being stingy with me, I need to forget not that I have a heavenly Father who knows me, who loves me, who knows all of my needs, and who, if he has graciously given, us, given me his own Son, how will he will not give us all things? What I most need in my life is to forget not who God is, and what he has done. And the way that God sought to instill this in the people of Israel was that they would have a pattern in their life, that their life would be part of a rhythm that would remember who God is and what he has done. That things such as this psalm, would, that the people of God individually would use this in their own individual worship and devotions to stir up their own soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Do you hear what he's doing? He is calling himself to praise God. He is calling himself to remember what God has done because he's forgotten it. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's like those days when you're laying in bed and you don't feel like getting out of bed, and you're laying there and you say, get up, man. Like you tell yourself to do something so that you do it. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So as an individual pattern to call ourselves to reflect upon and remember who God is and what he has done. Not only that, but as a pattern of the people of God. Why do you come to worship every week? Well, one, it is right to give God the worship and praise that he is due as creatures worshiping our creator. But the main reason is not to get some new insight, though maybe you get one or two here on Sunday mornings. But the main reason is that you would forget not that you would return once again and re-root yourselves in the truth of who God is and what he has done for you, and that you would remind yourself of those things. And the things that we do as a church in terms of our devotions and our small group Bible studies, worship, the practice of the sacraments, all of these things are done as part of the rhythm of our life, not because they're new, not because you haven't heard them before, but simply so that you would forget not once again who God is and what he has done. There's many different aspects of God's character 
to, to reflect upon, but the psalm picks one in particular, that we would forget not the love that God shows towards us. He says this, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. It's remarkable because the psalm focus, focuses the wonder of God's steadfast love on a couple characteristics of mankind. The first is he focuses God's steadfast loves and calls us to forget not God's love to finite people. Notice the wonder of this in verse 14. It begins before verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For, this is why God shows compassion. For, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. What are we? What is mankind? You know, what are we in our essence? Is there, is there any purpose or meaning to the passing days of our lives? Is there anything more than just being like a piece of grass that grows, flourishes, and gets blown away? and its place to remember it no more? Is there anything more to life than being born, sprouted, growing in the field, and then the wind coming and drying it out and being gone forever? Is there more to life than what my evolutionary biology professor said to us all, which was, you are nothing more than a glorified piece of pond scum, and your sole existence is to propagate your genetic line and that of your species. Is there anything more to life? And if those two things really are the case, if that's really all that we are, a glorified piece of pond scum, if really all that we are is this piece of grass that, flower, that, that blossoms and disappears, then the giant question is, so what? So what to everything? So what to everything that you want to do and don't want to do? If you want to do it, why not? If you don't want to do it, if you think it's wrong, Why? It's just going to disappear. It does not matter. So what? You know, for some people, you know, they try to deal with it, wrestle with this question by, you know, their quest is to say, well, in order to make sense of my limited existence, I want to live in such a way that somebody will make a monument to me. And they get put up all over the country. And there's an appropriate place to do that. Don't get me wrong. But how long do those monuments stay there? They stay there until people forget what they did, and then they tear them down, and they build another monument to somebody else that they remember. And then they go away. But I love, I just love the honesty of Scripture. You know, scripture just is very blunt about our condition. What is man? God knows that we are dust. His days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. And the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. You know, some other people try to answer, this, answer the, the, this quandary by saying, you know what the meaning of all of this is? The meaning is just simple. You just get to be alive. Atheist writer 
Greta Christina puts it this way when she reflects upon, reflects upon our finitude. She says this, death can be an appalling thing to think about. Not just frightening, not just painful. It can be paralyzing. The fact that your lifespan is an infinitesimally tiny fragment in the life of the universe that there is, at the very least, a strong possibility, according to her, that when you die, you disappear completely and forever. And that in 500 years, nobody will remember you. And in 5 billion years, earth will fall into the sun. This can be a profound and defining truth about your existence that, ref that you reflexively repulse, that you flinch away from, and you refuse to accept or even think about consistently pushing it to the back of your mind whenever it sneaks up for fear that if you allow it to sit in your mind, even for a minute, it will swallow everything else. It can make everything you do and anything anyone else does seem meaningless and trivial to the point of absurdity. It can make you feel erased, wipe out joy, make your life seem like ashes, in your hand. And she tries to answer, and she tries to give some hope. And this is her answer. What matters is that we get to be alive, period. We get to be conscious. We get to be connected with each other and with the world, and we get to, we get to be aware of that connection, and we get to spend a few years mucking around in this possibility. We get to have a slice of time and space that's ours. Begs the question, though, does it not? So what? So what? But the psalmist answers that question. For it says, though our days are like grass, where are we? As his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But, it is a but to the meaninglessness of life. But, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. On those who fear him, who gives righteousness to his children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commands. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. The steadfast love of the Lord is from before all time to after all time. It is the contrast to the meaninglessness of life. That God knows our frame. He knows the experience and, yes, the reality that we are but a piece of grass that flourishes and then the wind passes over and dries it out and we are no more to be remembered no more. God knows the finiteness of our life and yet God comes to us and it is his steadfast love from everlasting to everlasting that gives meaning to your meaninglessness that gives meaning to this whole enterprise of life. That from everlasting to everlasting, there is the steadfast love of God that goes over all. That there is a greater story going on than the story of your individual little existence, than your infinitesimally small piece of the space-time continuum. That there is a greater story of God's steadfast love, a greater story that therefore then gives meaning to your life, gives meaning to your existence, however short and small it is. That there is a story of God's everlasting love, a greater love than you individually can, can 
comprehend. And so, yes, your life may be like a little tiny speck of sand. But if your life is a little tiny speck of sand on the riverbank of the shore of God's eternal life, of, of God's eternal love, then your little speck of sand is filled with joy and filled with meaning, and filled with purpose, not because you are the be-all and end-all, but because your story is bound in the bigger story of God's everlasting love from eternity before to eternity afterwards. And it is in that that your life is filled with meaning, filled with person, purpose, and filled with joy. And as you come to embrace that love, moreover, as you come to be embraced by that love. It is that love that overwhelms you and fills you with a genuine and sincere and real purpose. And so, yes, you may feel insignificant. It's probably good that you do. You may feel meaningless. You may feel that your contribution to life isn't worthwhile. Reality is, very none of ours are. But what is worthwhile is that your life is rooted in the eternal story of what God is doing through Jesus Christ. And if you are found in that, then yes, your life counts. And yes, your life has meaning. And yes, there is an eternal love that fills you and covers you. Forget not God's steadfast love to finite people. Yet I find something even more remarkable. And it's the second thing that the psalmist emphasizes as a focus of God's steadfast love. It's calling us to forget not God's love to sinful people. Notice his description in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. He will not keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That even though you may be a speck on the sand, you're a speck on the sand that is guilty before God. And the psalmist declares, God does not deal with us according to our sins. What does that mean? It means that when I am selfish, God doesn't treat me in myself against my selfishness. When I am acting arrogantly and pompously, yes, sometimes God, yes, God mercifully corrects and chides me, but he doesn't treat me the way that I deserve to be treated. That when I am living in my own course, when I am refusing to follow God and going my own way, what God does is that he does not deal with us according to my waywardness and say, fine, you don't want to have anything to do with me? Have nothing to do with me. Let me know how you like it. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. That he doesn't give us the payment that is due for the wrongs that we have done. You know, what would those be? Is there any ways that we have turned and sinned against him? That God, instead of demanding payment from us, offers Jesus Christ himself to make the payment for us. You know, sometimes people say, well, why did, if, God is, if God is God and God can do whatever he wants, why did Jesus have to die? Why did God have to become man and Jesus have to die? And the answer to that question is that there is always a cost to forgiveness. There is always a cost to forgiveness. Anytime a debt has been incurred, there is a cost, a payment to be made to make it right. You know this, when someone hurts you, when someone makes you mad, there is a part of you that says, I want to make them pay, right? You know that. I want to make them pay. 
And what God declares in the psalmist is he says, no, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And instead of what God does in demanding the payment from us, he offers Jesus Christ and pays it himself. Here's the description of what that payment looks like. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, consider that. The next time that you are gazing at the sky, the next time the stars are out and you ponder how many millions of light years away the next star is, and as you see God's creation, forget not God's love to sinful people, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. How far is from the east from the west? They're always apart. Consider the earth. Can you go, if you're on the north pole, can you get to the south? Can you get to the south pole? You can, right? I mean, it's a finite distance. But if you are going east, can you ever get to the west? Can you ever get there? No, it is always the the complete opposite of wherever you are. There are two parallel lines that as far as the east is from the west, two things that never shall meet, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. But God's love to sinful people doesn't stop there because not only does he not treat us how we deserve to be treated, not only does he remove our transgressions as far as the east from the west, as if that weren't enough, It goes on to say this, that God redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. It's not just simply that our bad is removed, but everything that is good and excellent about Jesus Christ is given to you. The term here, it says, he crowns you, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. It doesn't say he covers you, he soaks you, he gives you, but he crowns you. You know, a crown is put upon someone as their distinguishing mark. It is a crown that shows what they represent. It is a crown that sees how they are identified, their most distinguished characteristic. And what God says, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, that your most distinguished characteristic is that you are one that the steadfast love and mercy has been set upon, that it covers you, that it radiates from you, that it represents who you are. It's not just that you're forgiven, far greater. You are crowned with love and mercy. And not just that God does these things, but he satisfies you with the good so that you are renewed. You see, the Christian life and the life that God gives you is not a life of austerity to punish you for the wrongs that you've done. Yep, your debt's been paid, but you're going to have to really cut back now so that you don't get in debt again. It's not a life of austerity. No, he, he, he gives you the good so that the deepest parts of your soul are satisfied and filled in him. Forget not God's love to sinful people. But maybe you've noticed as I've been reading this that God's steadfast love to finite people and God's steadfast love to sinful people does not extend to all finite people. And it does not extend to all sinful people, but only to a certain group. For the text, it only extends to those who are fear-filled people. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love 
towards those who fear him. Not towards everybody, towards those who fear him. Again, verse 17, but the steadfast of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him in his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, that is, those who remember that he is God, the one who saved them, the one who delivered them, and remember to do his commandments, and therefore, in response to God's grace, live their life in obedience in response to what God has done. Towards those who fear him, forget not God's steadfast love to fear-filled people. You know, quite frankly, this is a confusing phrase. Because you see this, if you read the Bible, you see this several times about those that fear the Lord. Stu preached on it a couple, couple weeks ago about, being, uh, about God's deliverance and the call to fear the Lord and what that means. And it's a little bit confusing because in addition to the command to remember who God is and what he has done, probably, arguably, some people argue the other most common command is, in Scripture is don't fear. That when God appears before somebody, he says, do not be afraid. When the angel comes before Mary, he says, do not be afraid. When Jesus walks on water, Jesus says to his disciples, do not be afraid. When God appears to Moses in the, in, in the cleft, he says to them, do not be afraid, right? Constantly, God is saying to his people, do not be afraid. And then we see these other things in Scripture that say, fear the Lord. Those who fear the Lord receive these blessings. Those who fear the Lord, the steadfast love is upon them. Well, how do we understand that? Well, I think a, a helpful picture of this is a little bit like the uh, circuit breaker box in my house. You know, sometimes when I'm repairing a light switch, I turn off the circuit breaker. Well, actually now, I turn it off all the time. I've gotten zapped enough that I'm over that. Like, I don't need to prove my electrical prowess by not getting zapped. So I turn off the circuit breaker. But I was doing something one time, and I needed to add a circuit breaker to my, to my breaker panel. So I went downstairs and took off the front of the breaker panel, right? Now, for those of you that have done this, there is something that is very startling when you do this is that there are two enormous bare wires that come into your breaker box, right? The two wires that come straight out of the street, right there. What do you do when you see that? Well, I, I called the electrician at that point, and I got them, got them to do it. I knew what to do, but I didn't want to do it. So imagine that the electrician comes over, the cover's off the breaker box, and he's standing there before the, before the breaker panel. He's about to put in the new breaker, and he's standing there, and I am there just before him, and I am just curled up in a little ball, and I am just trembling, and I am just so scared, and I'm just like, oh, this thing's just going to be like a bolt of lightning and zap me, and I, I just can't move. I'm just afraid. I'm just petrified of what's going to happen. What would the electric electrician say? Like, get up, man. He'd probably say, be a man. Get up, right? And then he'd say, don't be afraid, right? He'd say, don't be afraid. Don't touch the box but don't be afraid, right? What's the difference? Well, one is saying, there is, when God says, do not be afraid, he is calling and saying, listen, you don't need to stand in terror, quaking terror. You don't, need to, you don't need to come before the throne of grace in, in, in fear of imminent destruction. You don't need to come there with, with your body and soul shaking and quaking at this at this random judgment that might just jump out of the breaker box and blast you to the other side of the neighborhood. No, what it's saying is that you have a profound awe and respect. It's what you do before the, as you look at those electrical wires coming in, you don't mess with them, but you respect them. You're not terrified of them, but you fear them. 
you treat them with awe and wonder and give them the respect and honor that they are due. And that's what God is calling us to here. Is he's saying, listen, for those, this blessing of God's steadfast love is for those who fear the Lord. And so if you are here today and you're, one, and you're, you're, you're trying to figure out this Christian faith, or maybe you're one and you've kind of grown up in Christian circles and you've heard Christian things and you say, well, do I believe it? I don't know. I don't not believe it, but I'm not sure if I actively do believe it. Or maybe you're someone that's just checking this out. If you are here today and you do not want God to treat you as your sins deserve, if you do not want God to repay you for the wrongs that you have done, if you are here today and you do want God to remove your sins from you as far as the east is from the west and there the two shall meet, if you do want God to crown you with love and compassion, if you do want your infinitesimally small existence in the space-time continuum to be filled with true and genuine and lasting meaning and purpose, if you do want God to satisfy your deepest heart's desire and for your life to be filled with the good so that you are renewed like the eagle, then what this psalm calls you to do is to turn to the Lord. Yes, to fear him and to embrace, the term here is its covenant, but that you would embrace Jesus Christ, the one whom God's promises are fulfilled, the one whom God has sent so that our lives, so that we would not be treated as our sins deserve, the one through whom his kingdom is advancing to the ends of the earth and through whom everything on heaven and on earth to the end of the cosmos is being reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ, is that you turn to him and you cry out to him and you say, Lord, yes, I accept you. I believe that you are the eternal God that you are the creator, and not only are you the creator, but you are the one who has paid my penalty, and that in you, in you alone, does my life have meaning and existence. Lord, I commit my life to living for you. Friend, don't wait any longer. This, it, this isn't like this process that you go through. Yes, yeah, you need some knowledge. Yes, you need some understanding. But there is an instantaneous moment when you need to turn and put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Don't wait any longer. Because it is only, this steadfast love is only found in him and only found through him. And for those of you here who are followers of Jesus, the call of this psalm is to forget not. I really hope, if you are a follower of Jesus, that I have not said anything that is new to you today. But what I do hope is that God would use this and impress it upon you as part of the rhythm of doing so. That God would impress upon you his love for you, that you would forget not that you are a finite being. That you would forget not God's steadfast love to you as a sinful person. That you would forget not that God has given your life meaning and purpose and bestowed on you the crown of mercy and steadfast love, that you would forget not his mercy and his faithfulness and his love from eternity before to eternity ahead. And that in response, you, like David, would give God all the thankfulness, gratitude, honor, and praise that he is due. That you would stir up within yourselves 
and stir up within the communion of faith other people so that you would declare, bless the Lord, O my soul. Yes, bless the Lord, O my soul. Get up, man. Bless the Lord, O my soul. May all of his people give praise to God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Would you join with me and bless the Lord, O my soul? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you as specks of sand, and not even that. And Lord, we ask for an outpouring of your Spirit to take the meager offerings of our lives and that you would unite us into the eternal story of your steadfast love and so fill us with joy and the meaning and genuine and true and, and lasting purpose. Lord, would you do that for the honor of your name? Lord, would you take these truths and engrave them in our souls, impress them upon our minds, that ne'er a day passes when we forget who you are, but rather that we would wake anew every day and forget not who you are and what you have done, and our souls would rise to praise you. In your son's name we pray, amen.